Welcome to Zoinks, the podcast that explores creepy mysteries, spooky encounters, and all things strange and unusual. Tonight, who are the mysterious black-eyed children? The mystery of the black-eyed children is one of the internet's oldest myths, and it's grown quite a bit in recent years. But we can trace its origins back to an experience shared by Brian Bethel in 1998. Bethel describes an encounter with two boys between the ages of 10 and 14, who knocked on the window of his car as he was parked outside a movie theater. According to Bethel, the two children wanted a ride to their mother's house, because they'd forgotten their money and they needed it to get into the movie theater. Bethel describes a strong, inexplicable fear that washes over him upon seeing the children, a sense that something was wrong, and it wasn't until halfway through his conversation with them that he realized what it was. For the first time, he said, I noticed their eyes. They were coal black, no pupil, no iris, just two staring orbs reflecting the red and white light of the marquee. Shortly after this realization, Bethel's fear got the best of him, and he sped off in his car, glancing back at the children only to find that they were already gone. He then recalls relaying the story to a group of friends, one of whom immediately recognizes the situation, having experienced the same thing in a dream. The next account of a physical encounter comes 10 months later, courtesy of John Northwood, a friend of Bethel's, who relayed his own encounter via an online chat. He said, I was in downtown Portland after a seminar series on software development. I'd grabbed a bite of dinner around 10 p.m. and when I left it was about 11-ish. I'd gotten in my car, locked and belted up, and just as I started the engine, someone tapped on my window. I was in an above-ground garage on the third floor, so I wasn't too freaked out. Good lighting, still some people around. It was one of the guys from the conference, so I rolled down my window and asked him what was up. He wanted a ride around the block a few times, as he was freaked out by who was standing by his car. So, being a good Samaritan, I let him in, and we took off. We drove by his car, and there were three kids around it, two boys and a girl. The girl was weird, just freaky. You know, clothes and hair and makeup, goth-o-matic. The two kids were, I don't know, just scary as shit. She was probably 14 or 15. The oldest boy was probably 14-ish and the youngest between 10 and 12. She looked bored and was smoking a cigarette the two boys were just leaning against the car. They looked way too intense for kids. Anyway, I started itching behind my eyes like I really needed to look at them. So, like an ass, I slowed down 
big mistake. The two boys sauntered over, and the girl stayed against the car. The eldest was on Doug's side, that's the guy from the seminar, and the youngest was on mine. I made sure the doors were locked, and I asked why they were standing around his car. The young one said, It's scary out there all alone, and we just wanted a ride home. The eldest one said, You promised you'd help us out. And Doug said, I don't even know you. By this time, I really was on edge. All of a sudden, Doug said he was getting out of the car, and I told him not to. As soon as he reached for the handle, the two kids... I don't know how to say this right. They looked a lot older. Their faces were somewhat drawn, and their eyes were solid black, edge to edge. No pupil, no iris, nothing. Just a liquid black pool. I just about wet myself, slapped the car into reverse, and burned rubber back in about 60 feet away. They started running after the car, so I spun around one of the support struts and we took off. I kid you not, I was convinced that if they got a hold of the car, I was going to die, and not in anything approaching a pleasant fashion. After spreading around the internet for 15 years, the legend of the black-eyed children became the subject of a feature film spin-off of the popular web series The Haunting of Sunshine Girl in 2012, a Kickstarter-funded project. Shortly after this, in February 2013, a video focused on the legend was uploaded to the MSN Entertainment website. This new coverage gave the legend a new boost and created a significant amount of new interest in the black-eyed children. The peak of public interest in the legend came, however, in October 2014, when the Daily Star ran a series of three front-page articles dedicated to the black-eyed children. It began with a small article on the Birmingham Mail website, which told the story of a woman from Cannock Chase, Staffordshire, who encountered one of these mysterious creatures. Alerted by the screams of a child, the woman rushed to find the source of the noise, but was unable to locate it. As she paused to catch her breath, she turned and found a small girl standing behind her, with her hands over her eyes. It was as if she was waiting for a birthday cake, she said. I asked if she was okay, and if she'd been the one screaming. She put her arms down by her side and opened her eyes. That's when I saw that they were completely black. No iris, no white, nothing. This encounter caught the attention of Lee Brickley, a local paranormal investigator and author of the book UFOs, Werewolves, and the Pigman. Brickley was particularly interested in this story due to its similarity to an incident his own aunt had experienced 30 years earlier. He said, In the summer of 1982, my aunt was 18 years old, and she and her friends would often meet on Canic Chase in the evening time, probably much in the same way many teenagers still do today. One evening, just before dark, she heard a little girl frantically shouting for help. Rushing to locate the sound, she stumbled upon a dirt track and caught sight of the girl, about six years old, running in the opposite direction. When my aunt caught up, the girl turned around and looked her in the eyes, and then ran off into the dark woodland. Her eyes had been completely black, with no trace of white. 
It was then that the story caught the attention of the Daily Star, who put the article on their front page, followed the very next day by another front page story, this time about the Four Crossers Inn, a pub in Canuck Chase that is struggling to attract a buyer due to rumours that the building is haunted. Among various stories of spooky activity, such as disembodied screaming and a piano playing by itself, several locals are said to have laid eyes on the spectral black-eyed child in the downstairs bar. A series of sensationalist articles from the Daily Star followed, with the paper reportedly receiving a number of calls from people all over the country who have previously caught a glimpse of the mysterious black-eyed children. Sightings were reported in varied places including London, Liverpool, and Scotland. The Daily Star then took their coverage a step further, with a trip to Canuck Chase, in which they were accompanied by a photographer who claimed to have snapped a photograph of the ghost, and a psychic who claimed to have figured out the ghost's identity. Ian Lawman claimed to have physically sensed the name Christine, which the paper links to a seven-year-old Christine Darby, whose body was found in Canuck Chase in 1967. Her body had been disposed of by killer Raymond Leslie Morris. Raymond Leslie Morris killed three schoolgirls in Canuck Chase between 1965 and 1967, and died in 2014 at the age of 84, having spent the final 45 years of his life in prison. Could it be that the black-eyed children of Chanak Case are the spirits of Morris's victims? Or is this loose link a vague angle being grasped at by the Daily Star in an attempt to continue the narrative of their lucrative sensationalism? Common sense, of course, suggests that the legend of the black-eyed children is just that, a legend. After all, there is no factual evidence to back up these claims, and there seems to be no example of the story that predates the original posting by Brian Bethel. Perhaps one day further evidence of the black-eyed children will come to light, but for the time being, it would seem that they are nothing more than a story shared on the internet in 1998 that took on a life of its own and spread like wildfire. That is, after all, what creepypasta does best. Well, it's rare that we crack a case in the very first segment, but there's a first time for everything. And now... Weird. Science. This is the segment where we discuss strange and interesting news and facts from the world of science. A recent study used CT scans of Neanderthal skulls to determine the kind of hearing range that Neanderthals possessed. The goal was to determine whether their hearing range would correspond to the kind of range we'd expect of a species with a complex, developed language. The answer was a resounding yes. While we have no way of knowing exactly how Neanderthals spoke to each other, we've known for a while that their communication skills were more complex than initially thought. In fact, the more we've learned about Neanderthals, the more it has become clear that the caricaturish caveman image that we gave them throughout much of the 20th century could not be further from the truth. So, in the spirit of that progress, I thought it would be interesting to go over a few interesting and perhaps surprising facts about Neanderthals. 
First of all, Neanderthals were likely capable of creating art. Cave paintings found in Spain have been dated to approximately 66,000 years ago, which is around 20,000 years before modern humans first moved to Europe, suggesting that the artwork might have Neanderthal origins. These dates have been contested. However, Neanderthals were known to have collected objects such as crystals and fossils, with no apparent functional purpose, and there is evidence that they may have used their skills with tools to create jewellery. Additionally, a bone fragment found in Slovenia dates back 43,000 years, and appears to have been carved into a flute. This dating does overlap with the arrival of modern humans, so it's impossible to know the flute's origins for certain, if indeed it is a flute but it has been proposed that this is evidence that Neanderthals produced some kind of music. Another fact that you've probably heard in recent years is that Neanderthals and humans interbred, which has resulted in all human populations outside of sub-Saharan Africa sharing a portion of their genome with Neanderthals. Estimates differ, but the commonly cited number says that we share between 1 and 4% of our DNA with Neanderthals, this finding has always struck me as particularly interesting, as it really does highlight how much we have in common with our distant cousins. Other similarities include complex emotions. Neanderthals have not only been shown to have buried their dead, but there is some evidence that they left gifts at the graves too. Child graves in particular have been found to have been adorned with ornaments, carved from animal bones and flint, and pollen found in one grave has been suggested to be evidence that Neanderthals may have engaged in the very human practice of leaving flowers on graves. It's unknown if there were any kind of practical purposes to this, or if these burial traditions carried some sort of symbolism, and if so, what the implications of that might be. Some have suggested that these findings are evidence of some kind of early religion among Neanderthals, while others believed that Neanderthals had not developed anything as complex as religion. As with many things on this show, we'll never really know. That's all from Weird Science for now. Since we don't have any further theories to discuss for our main mystery, let's dive straight in to today's spooky encounter. Bob McNeil was by all accounts a deeply cruel and unpleasant character, known in his youth to have skinned cats alive and left them to suffer and die. In August 1878, McNeil assaulted his friend Esther Cox. Esther was left traumatized by this event, and it was amidst this trauma that one of North America's most notorious poltergeists would present itself. 18-year-old Esther lived in a crowded house in Amherst, Nova Scotia, where she shared a bed with her sister Jenny. Also living in the house was their brother William and their sister Olive, as well as Olive's husband Daniel, the couple's two children, and Daniel's brother John. The strange phenomena started with banging noises and quickly progressed to objects moving by themselves and taking flight. Esther then began to suffer odd seizures where her body swelled up and she experienced both fever and chills. Events quickly worsened as Esther found herself cut, scratched, and stabbed by pins and needles. 
objects continued to fly through the air, and containers of water in the house would begin to spontaneously boil, despite remaining cool. Then, during a visit from the family's doctor, the family heard scratching noises and witnessed the words, Esther Cox, you are mine to kill, appear on the wall. Esther then contracted diphtheria and remained bedbound for two weeks, after which she travelled to stay with another sister in Sackville, New Brunswick. The paranormal activity ceased completely during the time Esther spent in bed and in Sackville, but it resumed as soon as she returned to Amherst. Around this time, Esther claimed to see the ghost for the first time, saying that the entity was threatening to burn down the house. Soon, matches began materialising and falling onto the furniture, and clothes were set alight. By this point, the events surrounding Esther Cox had become notorious among the local community. After a fire in the basement almost consumed the house, the family's landlord insisted that Esther move out. She relocated to a local farm, but the strange activity followed and it wasn't long before two barns burned down in Esther's presence. Naturally, there was speculation that Esther was faking the existence of the entity and that she herself was responsible for the odd happenings and for starting the fires. Interestingly, around this time, Esther was found to have stolen some clothing from her employer. She was sentenced to a month in jail, and the supernatural phenomena ceased entirely during Esther's time behind bars. But, eventually, the phenomena returned. By now, Esther had learned to communicate with the entity, which had identified itself as Bob Nickel, a shoemaker in life. In addition, other spirits identified themselves, including a spirit called Maggie Fisher, and a spirit claiming to be a relative of Esther's, Peter Cox. Esther's case may have remained the stuff of local legend if it weren't for Walter Hubble, an out-of-work actor who met Esther and saw an opportunity to make some money by touring. But the plan was a disastrous failure when the spirits failed to perform on stage. Hubble then moved on to plan B, moving in with Esther and her family, and writing up her case as a book. The final product, The Haunted House, A True Ghost Story, was published in 1879 and was a big success, selling 55,000 copies and making Esther Cox's story much more widely known. Hubble released an expanded version of the book in 1888, and the case would be covered by several other authors in the following years, some of whom would believe the supernatural claims, while others would be more sceptical, sometimes accusing Esther outright of faking the entire ordeal. But what became of Esther? Well, after taking another job on a farm, yet another barn burned down in Esther's presence. Her employer accused her of arson, which resulted in Esther serving four months in prison. Just as with her previous stint in prison, the paranormal phenomena would come to a complete stop while Esther was behind bars. But this time, the change would be for good, as the supernatural events orbiting Esther Cox ceased at last. Esther eventually married twice, 
having a child with each husband before dying in Brockton, Massachusetts on November 8th, 1912, aged only 52 years. That's everything we've got for you today, but we'll have another mystery for you in the next episode. If you're enjoying the podcast, we have a whole website where we publish articles about all things spooky, from the supernatural to the unexplained. You can find that at daffodillies.co.uk slash zoinks. That's D-A-F-F-A-D-I-L-L-I-E-S dot co.uk slash zoinks. Head over there now, dive in, and creep yourself out. And be sure to join us in the comments to share your thoughts and theories. If you want to get in touch, you can also find us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is fearbyzoinks. And you can always email us at zoinks at daffodillies.co.uk. Finally, if you have a moment, we'd love a rating and a review on whichever app you're using. It would really help us out, especially as we're a new show. Until next time, stay spooky. <laughs>